I am Srimati Karuna, the director of the Gandhi Memorial Center in Washington, D.C. I bring to you this series, Speaking of Gandhi, sharing the messages from the life of the Mahatma. Sarojini Chattopadhyay Nadu was born on February 13, 1879. She was an important figure in India's struggle for independence from colonial rule. And she was known as the Nightingale of India, a name given to her by Gandhiji. She was also called Bharat Kokila by Rabindranath Tagore. Listen as Jackie Rockwell reads from the words of Mrs. Sarojini Naidu. I don't think I had any special hankering to write poetry as a little child, though I was of a very fanciful and dreamy nature. My training under my father was of a sternly scientific character. He was determined that I should be a great mathematician or a scientist, but the poetic instinct, which I inherited from him and also from my mother, who wrote some lovely Bengali lyrics in her youth, proved stronger. One day, when I was 11, I was sighing over a sum in algebra. It wouldn't come right. But instead, a whole poem came to me suddenly. I wrote it down. From that day, my poetic career began. At 13, I wrote a long poem a la Lady of the Lake, 1,300 lines in six days. At 13, I wrote a drama of 2,000 lines, a full-fledged, passionate thing that I began on the spur of the moment, without forethought, just to spite my doctor, who said I was very ill and must not touch a book. My health broke down permanently about this time, and my regular studies being stopped, I read voraciously. I suppose the greater part of my reading was done between 14 and 16. I wrote a novel. I wrote fat volumes of journal. I took myself seriously in those days. The following two poems by Sarojini Naidu offer a glimpse of her poetic verse and expression. To priests and to prophets, the joy of their creeds, to kings and their cohorts, the glory of their deeds, and peace to the vanquished and hope to the strong, for me, O oh my master, the rapture of song. Into the strife of the throng and the tumult, the war of sweet love against folly and wrong, when brave hearts carry the sword of battle, tis mine to carry the banner of song. The solace of faith to the lips that falter, the succor of hope to the hands that fail, the tidings of joy when peace shall triumph, when truth shall conquer and love prevail. Sarojini Nadu was to refer to her first meeting with Gandhiji several times later in the course of her life. It was just after the First World War had broken out all over Europe in the July of 1914. Sarojini's first meeting with Gandhiji was also, in a way, through Gokhale, who had invited Gandhiji to return to India from South Africa via London. But when Gandhiji reached London, Gokhale was unexpectedly held up for some days in Paris and Sarojini happened to be in London then by chance. She was there recovering from an illness. Later, she described her momentous first meeting with Gandhiji. Listen 
as Jackie Rockwell reads from Sarojini Naidu's own reflection upon her first meeting with Mahatma Gandhi. Curiously enough, my first meeting with Mahatma Gandhi took place in London on the eve of the Great European War of 1914, when he arrived fresh from his triumphs in South Africa, where he had initiated his principle of passive resistance and won a victory for his countrymen, who were at the time chiefly indentured laborers, over the redoubtable General Smuts. I had not been able to meet his ship on arrival, but the next afternoon I went wandering around in search of his lodging in an obscure part of Kensington and climbed up the steep stairs of an old, unfashionable house to find an open door framing a living picture of a little man with a shaven head seated on the floor on a blank prison below. Around him were ranged some battered tins of parched groundnut and tasteless biscuits of dried plantain flour. I burst instinctively into happy laughter at the amusing and unexpected vision of a famous leader whose name had already become household word in our country. He lifted his eyes and laughed back at me, saying, Ah, you must be Mrs. Nadu. Who else dare be so irreverent? Come in and share my meal. No thanks, I replied, sniffing. What an abominable mess it is. In this way and at that instant commenced our friendship, which flowered into real comradeship and bore fruit in a long, long, loyal discipleship, which never wavered for a single hour through more than 30 years of common service in the cause of India's freedom from foreign rule. For his part, Gandhiji mentioned this first meeting with Sarojini in his autobiography, My Experiments with Truth. There is an entire volume of correspondence between Gandhiji and Sarojini that reflects three decades of the national movement and the journey towards freedom. They began corresponding in 1915, and in their exchanges, he addressed her as Dear Sister, while she referred to him as Dear Friend whom she looked up to in every possible way. Over the years, they referred to each other in similar light-hearted and affectionate ways. In the mid-1920s, there are some letters where he addresses her as Mirabai, who was a medieval bhakti saint devoted to the god Krishna. Sarojini also wrote to him as she traveled to different countries, and in one letter she wrote, From the wandering singer to the spinner stay at home. She also called him variously the Apostle of Peace and the Mystic Spinner. As she was seeking to reconcile different factions of the Congress, he called her Peacemaker. Somewhere along the line, she also described him as Mickey Mouse and the Little Man. Just before he set off on a visit to Bihar as communal riots broke out in July 1946, Sarojani referred to Gandhiji as the beloved pilgrim. She could tease the Mahatma and even joke about him, but she always held him in the utmost reverence. Durahal Nehru's sister, Vijaya Lakshmi Pandit, wrote in her memoirs that the one person who was really able to help Gandhiji to relax and enjoy a joke was Sarojani Naidu. She was herself a unique human being with a fount of amusing stories and could say the most outrageous things 
without giving offense. What drew Sarojini was Gandhiji's single-mindedness, his good faith and large-heartedness. As she became more involved with the Congress, she was also one of Gandhiji's closest associates. Listen now as Dr. Natwar Gandhi, a past Fellowship of Peace Award recipient of the Mahatma Gandhi Memorial Foundation and former Chief Financial Officer of the District of Columbia, offers readings from the messages and letters sent from Mahatma Gandhi to Mrs. Sarojini Naidu. These letters introduce us to the very profound message and personable friendship that Mahatma Gandhi shared with Mrs. Naidu. Dear sister, I appreciated your little note. Observe that you have survived the operation. I hope that it will be entirely successful so that India may for many a year to come continue to hear your songs. For me, I do not know when I shall be able to leave this sickbed of mine. Somehow or other, I cannot put on flash and gain more strength than I have. I am making a mighty attack. The doctors, of course, despair in face of the self-imposed restrictions under which I am laboring. I assure you that they have been my greatest consolation during this protracted illness. I have no desire whatsoever to live upon condition of breaking those disciplinary and invigorating restrictions. For me, although they restrict the body somewhat, they free the soul and they give me a consciousness of it which I should not otherwise possess. You can't serve God and mammon has a clearer and deeper meaning for me. After these, those vows, I do not infer that they are necessary for all, but they are for me. If I broke them, I feel that I should be perfectly worthless. Do let me have an occasional line from you. Yours, M.K. Gandhi. My dear sister, what would you say of a brother who does not inquire about his sister's health? does not acknowledge her message of goodwill and who does not even send a note of sympathy on her father's death. You will believe me when I tell you that I have not had a moment's rest after our landing. I thought therefore that I would write to you on settling down somewhere. Then I heard from Mr. Gokhale just when I left for Bolpur, that you had lost your father. I said to myself then that I would write to you on reaching Bolpur. But no sooner did I reach Bolpur than I had to retrace my steps to visit the desolate home of the society. Oh, the pity of it! And yet, my Rajaguru died as very few had the privilege of dying. And now excuse me for the delay in writing to you. My sympathies are with you in your sorrow. You have enough philosophy in you to bear the grief that has overtaken you. Do please let me know how you are keeping. 
with regards from us both. Yours sincerely, M. K. Gandhi. My dear sister, I did not reply to your last letter, as I had hoped to be able at the time of replying to tell you when I was likely to visit Hyderabad. But the receipt of your booklet with the beautiful inscription in it compels me to write to you now, even though I cannot fix the date of my coming to Hyderabad. I thank you for the inscription. Yes, Mr. Gokhale longed to have you as a full servant of India. Your acknowledgement of discipleship fills one with new hope. But of these more when we meet. For me, the death of the Master has drawn me closer to him. I see him and appreciate his worth as I never did before. For the lover, the loved one never dies. Are you keeping well in health? I leave Madras on the seventh instant from Bombay. I, my permanent address is Servants of India Society, Pune. Mrs. Gandhi, who is with me, sends her love to you. My dear fly, who is the most distinguished daughter of Bengal and equally distinguished daughter-in-law of Andhra? Though you are so distinguished, you are still a fly, thank God. I have already written to Padmaja without in any way mentioning you for the journey. You are past praying for. Much love till we meet on or about 8th December. Yours, little spinner, spider, etc. Dear sweet singer, may God be with you in your travel, which is but your anvil to test the gold that is you. Yours, spinner. My dear Bulbul, your letter here is a note for Maina. You must sing in the midst of personal sorrow. Why should it be all joy? My love to you and the whole family. I, for one, shall not trouble you while you are undergoing this purifying bath. I had many temptations to send the singer to the frontier, to sin, to the States, etc. My answer was an emphatic no. Love. Spinner. My dear singer, I kept yours of 13th just to give you a few lines of love for your great motherly affection. Your wire was good as from a philosopher who could put the, her philosophy to practice at the right moment. Your letter brings out a mother's affection at its best. I do not know whether to love you best as a poetess, philosopher, or mother. Tell me, love, spinner. What drew Sarojini was Gandhiji's single-mindedness, his good faith and large-heartedness. As she became more involved with the Congress, she was also one of Gandhiji's closest associates. In March 1930, when Gandhiji announced the civil disobedience movement by launching his Salt Satyagraha against the monopoly of the Salt Laws, he was soon arrested, and on May 5th, the leadership of the movement fell to Sarojini. 
she, along with several thousand volunteers, attempted to enter the Darsana salt works near Dandi, just as Gandhiji had intended. The factory had been closed to bar the satyagrahis from entering. Gandhiji often embarked on fasts, and over the years these took a toll on his frail health. Most times, Sarojini would pray silently for his long life. She was by his side on September 20, 1932, when Gandhiji embarked on his fast against the provision of separate electorates for the lower castes, as per the communal award offered by the British in 1932. On the 10th of February, 1943, Gandhiji commenced a fast again that ended on March 2nd. This was much to Sarojini's relief, for there had been rumors about his deteriorating health. She later said that towards the end of the seventh day of his fast, Gandhiji, to all appearances, had died. It was as though a light had gone out of the world. It was a miracle how his will asserted itself. She referred to the problem and paradox of the marvelous little Mickey Mouse who has nibbled his way back to life from the lightly spreaded and knotted nets of death. A lineal descendant of those great sons of compassion who became the servants of humanity, Gautama Buddha, Chaitanya, Ramanuja, and Ramakrishna, he lacks maybe the breadth and height and ecstasy of their mystical attainment, but he is not less than theirs in his intensity of love his sincerity of service, and a lofty simplicity of life, which is the austere flower of renunciation and self-sacrifice. He has mastered the secret of real greatness and learned that true yoga is wisdom in action and that love is the fulfilling of the law. In addition to her writings and letters, Sarojini Naidu's speeches also bring an important relevance of her expression and ideal into the life of her country. In a speech on the ideals of Islam delivered in Madras before the Muslim Association in December 1917, Sarojini Naidu said, It was the first religion that preached and practiced democracy. For in the mosque, when the minaret is sounded and the worshipers are gathered together, the democracy of Islam is embodied five times a day when the peasant and the king kneel side by side and proclaim, God alone is great. I have been struck over and over again by this indivisible unity of Islam that makes a man instinctively a brother. The intellectual thought that evolved out of this sense of fundamental oneness found its beautiful expression in that spiritual Sufism which is blood kin to Vedantism. What is the teaching of the Sufi doctrine except the Vedanta, which we Hindus inherited, the love of mankind, the service to the world, ecstasy in which self is annihilated into the universal life of humanity? Go to the poetry of Islam. What is there so beautiful in all the wide and manifold realms of literature as that immortal lyric of Hafiz, Rumi, that in the language of man, there, too, in his higher manifestation, the lyric genius of Islam, of India, has been not less than the epic genius of India or of Europe. 
When we analyze the evolution of that great literature, and when we find the two meeting through one religion, we find indeed the inheritors of that dual culture, the blending of mysticism with the Semitic, dynamic, logical, practical power of life. There, the dreaming and the action become united, because one religion has bound them, and we in India are richer for our Indian descent. The first accents I heard were in the tongue of Amir of Khuzru. All my early associations were formed with the Muslim men and Muslim women of my city. My first playmates were Muslim children. Sarojini Naidu made a very impressive speech, which she concluded with a defense of her entry into the political arena from the Sanctuary of Poetry and Dreams in May of 1918 at the Madras Provincial Conference held at Kandivaram. Standing before you today, I feel a thrill of pride to say that, henceforth, I am not only with you, but of you. For in this great city, I have seen once more the vision beautiful to which my life is dedicated. Often and often have they said unto me, Why have you come out of the ivory tower of dreams to the marketplace? Why have you deserted the pipes and flute of the poet to be the most strident trumpet of those who stand and call the nation to battle? Because the function of a poet is not merely to be isolated in ivory towers of dreams set in a garden of roses, but his place is with the people, in the dust of the highways, in the difficulties of battle, is the poet's destiny. The one reason why he is a poet is that in the hour of danger, in the hour of defeat and despair, the poet should say to the dreamer, if you dream true, all difficulties, all illusions, all despair are but maya. The one thing that matters is hope. Here I stand before you with your highest dreams, your invisible courage, your indomitable victories. Therefore, today in the hour of struggle, when you, in your hands it lies to win victory for India, I have come out of my home. I, a dreamer of dreams, have come into the marketplace, and I say, go forth, comrades, to victory. Sarojini Naidu traveled the length and breadth of India making speeches in every place on a variety of topics. She recognized in Gandhiji a leader who was able to sustain the leadership of India. She wrote to Gandhiji on July 15, 1920. The specialists think that my heart disease is in an advanced and dangerous state, but I cannot rest till I stir the heart of the world to repentance over the tragedy of martyred India. Sarojini was present at the court when Mahatma Gandhi was tried and sentenced to six years of imprisonment. She described the scene of the great trial in the Bombay Chronicle when she wrote in March 1922. A convict and a criminal in the eyes of the law, nevertheless, the entire court rose in an act of spontaneous homage when Mahatma Gandhi entered, a frail, serene, indomitable figure in a coarse and scanty loincloth accompanied by his devoted disciple and fellow prisoner, Shankar Lal. And Gandhiji said, So, you are seated near me to give me your support in case I broke down. 
He jested with that happy laugh of which seems to hold all the undimmed radiance of the world, childhood in its depths. And looking round at the host of familiar faces of men and women who had traveled far to offer him a token of their love, he added, This is like a family gathering and not a law court. A thrill of mingled fear, pride, hope, and anguish ran through the crowded hall when the judge took his seat, an admirable judge, deserving of our praise alike for his brave and resolute sense of duty, his flawless courtesy, his just perception of a unique occasion, and his fine tribute to a unique personality. The strange trial proceeded, and as I listened to the immortal words that flowed with prophetic fervor from the lips of my beloved master, my thoughts spread across the centuries to a different land, in a different age, when a similar drama was enacted, and another divine and gentle teacher was crucified for spreading a kindred gospel with a kindred courage. I realize now that the lowly Jesus of Nazareth, cradled in a manner furnished the only true parallel in history to this sweet, invincible apostle of Indian liberty, who loved humanity with surpassing compassion, and to use his own beautiful phrase, approached the poor with the mind of the poor. The most epic event of modern times ended quickly. The pent-up emotion of the people burst in a storm of sorrows as a long, slow procession moved towards him in a mournful pilgrimage of farewell, clinging to the hands that had toiled so incessantly, bowing over the feet that had journeyed so continuously in the service of his country. In the midst of all this poignant scene of many-voiced and myriad-hearted grief, he stood untroubled in all his transcendent simplicity, the embodied symbol of the Indian nation, its living sacrifice and sacrament in one. They might take him to the utmost ends of the earth, but his destination remains unchanged in the hearts of his people, who are both the heirs and the stewards of his matchless dreams and his matchless deeds. Early in October 1922, Mrs. Naidu went to sail on for a holiday. Her visit was supposed to be private and for the benefit of her help, which eventually developed into a week of very full public engagement. She drove through the whole island and was received everywhere with tremendous enthusiasm. And she lectured before audiences in Colombo, Gal, and Jaffna on the message of Mahatma Gandhi and the achievements of non-cooperation. At the great public meeting in Colombo on the 7th of October, the president of the Ceylon National Congress, Mr. H.J.C. Pereira, K.O., presided and Mrs. Nadu spoke on the Indian Renaissance to an audience spellbound by her eloquence. President, people of Ceylon, my Indian brothers, as I came to Ceylon, I thought I was coming as a stranger to a strange land. I have been ill, as you know, and when my doctor once said to me, when you are able to go for a change, you must go to a place where no one knows you and where you know nobody. I at once said, I think Ceylon will be the right place for me because nobody knows me there. But my ignorance, which extends to many other subjects, extended apparently to the omniscience of the Ceylonese people, 
because when, quite humbly, I arrived in Colombo, it was to be greeted with the information that Colombo was waiting to welcome what was called the Singing Bird of India. But no one realized, perhaps, that the Singing Bird had a broken wing and a broken voice, and now and then the sorrow of a broken heart. That sorrow is not personal, not individual. It is the heritage of my people today. Only the other day before I came here, I wrote to my friend, Mrs. Kasturba Gandhi, who was going to see my master in his prison, to tell my bapu, that is, my father, that anywhere, living or dead, I shall bear his message in my heart. And when the people of Ceylon wished me to speak to them, I felt that I must deliver to the people of Ceylon the great message of deliverance that Mahatma Gandhi is preaching in India today. That frail ascetic, as Srinivasa Shastri called him, that little, almost naked man, that little frail figure that could be crushed between the thumb and the finger of a burly Englishman, he languishes indeed in prison today. But all the walls of a prison and all the walls of a tomb cannot silence that imperishable voice of liberty. And so today, if I have chosen for my subject the Indian Renaissance, I must needs speak of him who has been the first apostle and prophet and the martyr of that Indian Renaissance. As your president rightly said, you in this land of beauty are undergoing your trial by fire. You too are in the crucible. You too are being tested so that your dross shall be purged from your pure gold. And therefore it is meant that you people of Ceylon should hear from me, the least, the lowliest, but most loyal follower of Gandhi, the message that Gandhi was born to deliver to the world and make it full of peace. Sarojini suffered frequent terms of imprisonment in her long involvement in the nationalist cause in India, one where she always marched in Gandhiji's footsteps. The lengthiest incarceration she served was soon after the Quit India Resolution had been passed on August 8, 1942. She was imprisoned in the Aga Khan Palace in Pune, along with Mahatma Gandhi and his wife Kasturba. It was here that Kasturba died of a long fever. Sarojini, who was suffering from malarial fever too, was released in March 1943. Five years later, in 1948, only a few months after India had gained independence, Gandhiji was assassinated. In her broadcast on the 1st of February, 1948, Sarojani Naidu was to say, My father, do not rest. She knew his message to India and all Indians would live on forever. Sarojani Naidu recognized in Mahatma Gandhi, how and what lexicons of the world's tongues shall I find words of adequate beauty and power that might serve, even approximately, to portray the rare and exquisite courtesy and compassion, courage, wisdom, humor, and humanity of this unique man, who was assuredly a lineal descendant of all the great teachers who taught the gospel of love, truth, and peace for the salvation of humanity, and who was essentially akin to all the saints and prophets, religious reformers, and spiritual revolutionaries of all times and lands. Like Gautama Buddha, he was a lord of infinite compassion. 
he exemplified in his daily life Christ's Sermon from the Mount of Olives. Both by precept and practice, he realized the Prophet Muhammad's beautiful message of democratic brotherhood and equality of all mankind. He was, though it sounds obsolete and almost paradoxical to use such a phrase, literally a man of God in all the depth, fullness, and richness of its implications, who especially in the later years of his own life was regarded by millions of his fellow men as himself a living symbol of Godhead. But while this man of God inspired in us awe and veneration because of his supreme greatness, he endeared himself to us and evoked our warmest love by the very faults and follies which he shared with our frail humanity. I love to remember him as a playmate of little children, as the giver of solace to the sorrowful, the oppressed, and the fallen. I love to recall the picture of him at his evening prayers, facing a multitude of worshipers, with the full moon slowly rising above the silver sea, the very spirit of immemorial India, and with but a brief interval to find him seated with bent brows giving counsel to statesmen responsible for the policies and programs of political India, the very spirit of renascent India demanding her equal place among the world nations. But perhaps the most poignant and memorable of all is the last picture of him walking to his prayers at the sunset hour on January 30th, 1948, translated in a tragic instant of martyrdom from mortality to immortality. I look forward to sharing with you more messages from the life of Mahatma Gandhi. As he said, my life is my message. Vaishnava Jai.